traditions like the New Thought tradition in America become the sort of new theological account of what it means to be human. New Thought, which gets founded in the 1860s, is basically a proto-the secret, proto-law of attraction, runs on the idea that if you just think positive enough, you will bring health and wealth into your life. This becomes a hugely, hugely influential cultural phenomenon during the Gilded Age. And at the core of it is the sense that if you just want something badly enough, you can make the universe give it to you. And that that is sort of how the universe functions theologically. And while I think New Thought itself is not widely understood now, this kind of language, this kind of cultural miasma is very much present. Over 50% of Americans believe that manifesting works. About 20% say they regularly do it. Purely anecdotally, if we're talking generationally, all the Zoomers are doing it. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome back to another installment of Yasha Tells You About His Book. We are now in part three of the identity trap, talking about the applications of the popularized form of the identity synthesis to many areas of our public life. And one that I'm particularly exercised about, I must admit, is so-called cultural appropriation. It's the way in which cultural exchange between different identity groups has fallen in the last years under a general pool of suspicion. This is puzzling in many ways because those fears about risks or dangers to cultural purity have for a long time been the preserve of a political right. But nowadays, they are in some ways more common in progressive circles that claim that there's an implicit form of property right that identity groups hold over the characteristic cultural artifacts and memes and products, one that should be respected by members of other kinds of group. Here too, there is a seemingly plausible insight behind the intuition. And that is that, of course, there have in history been deeply unjust acts that might today be described as forms of cultural appropriation, as when white musicians stole of the musical genres and often the actual songs of black musicians who were not able to have big careers in their own right in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States because they were excluded from performing in many concert venues, because many major record labels would not sign them because white music buyers discriminated against them. But I argue that it is a mistake to think of cultural appropriation as what philosophers would call the wrong-making feature of these cases. Broadly speaking, the argument is that in every case in which something bad is actually going on, you are able to express that in much more straightforward ways. In the case I just mentioned, the wrong-making feature was not white musicians being inspired by black musicians. It was segregation in the Jim Crow South. It was the discriminatory practices of major record labels. It was concert halls that refused to book black artists. It was much more flagrant and straightforward forms of injustice. There's an example that I think really clarifies why cultural appropriation can't actually help to explain to us what is wrong in these situations. A few years ago, fraternity 
at Baylor University in Texas held what we call the Cinco de Drinco party, a party inspired by the itself dubiously authentic American-Mexican holiday of Cinco de Mayo. And some of its mostly white students showed up to this fraternity party dressed in ponchos or sombreros or in maze outfits and construction vests. Now, clearly, I found this to be offensive. The purpose of this event was to mock and to denigrate Latinos in a country in which they are socioeconomically disadvantaged. But can cultural appropriation explain why this event was wrong? I think not. Because on the logic of cultural appropriation, the students who were wearing ponchos or sombreros were doing something wrong. But the students who were wearing construction vests or maid outfits were not doing anything wrong. After all, a maid outfit is, if anything, a kind of part of this French or European culture rather than Mexican culture. The students who were wearing the maid's outfits were not committing cultural appropriation. So I think here too, there's a much more straightforward account of what went wrong. What was offensive about the Cinco de Drinco party was the intention to mock and denigrate these fellow students, to suggest that somehow all that Latinos are good for is to be manual laborers, that there's something comical about their culture. That was the offense, not any form of neutral cultural influence. As thoughtful philosophers like Kwame Anthony Appiah point out, no culture is genuinely pure. The culture of every country is deeply influenced by cultural artifacts that were produced in countries around the world. And even if we could trace some contemporary cultural product back to a single innovator, it would be unlikely that that innovator would think of themselves as part of a modern identity group in that sense. It is questionable, for example, that the Central American artisans who invented the reboso in some village in Mexico, perhaps, would today recognize themselves as part of the much broader, much different group of Latinos. And so we should absolutely oppose forms of quote-unquote cultural appropriation whose injustice we can express in more straightforward, more compelling terms. But we must celebrate the mutual cultural influence, which will be a natural attribute of thriving, diverse societies as one of their triumphs and successes rather than something which we should cast under a general pole of suspicion. My guest today is Tara Isabella Burton. Tara is the author, among other nonfiction books and novels, of Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Leonardo da Vinci to the Kardashians. Tara has a really interesting set of views about the way in which our thinking about personal identity has changed over the course of centuries, and in particular the way in which the modern way of viewing identity is deeply inflected by forms of sort of pseudo-spirituality and so on in contemporary society. And we had a really fun conversation about what that means 
for how we can create a more healthy set of ideas about what identity does and should entail. Tara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. So you've been thinking a lot about the nature of identity in this particular cultural moment and how that has evolved, how it's changed over the centuries. So what are we talking about when we're talking about identity? And how does an understanding of our intellectual history help us to reconceptualize the practices in our society today? So I think increasingly now, I, I argue in self-made, that our fundamental sense of identity It's a little bit about political community, but primarily about trying to work out what exactly makes us us. When I started writing Self-Made, I wanted to do something narrower and more specific, which is a history of this idea of self-creation, the self-made man, the entrepreneur, the dandy who lives life as art. But increasingly, I found that this kind of distinctly early modern and modern cultural shift about what makes us us became more at the heart of the project, even as these paradigmatic self-makers kind of exemplified it. And I think increasingly, from roughly the Renaissance to the present day, although that's a, that's a large swath of history, we've seen a, a shift in thinking of what you might call our circumstances, our facticity, our selves as social selves, as increasingly being seen as arbitrary or contingent. These are not the things that make us us. Rather, what makes us us increasingly comes to be understood as our hopes, our dreams, and ultimately our desires, that our effective states are the most accurate window into who we quote-unquote really are. And so I think particularly in this sort of post-internet iteration of that cultural moment where more and more of us are not only disembodied physically, but also isolated, fractured, alienated from wider communities, we become all the more insistent that we are who we want to be, and that these sort of other elements of our communal life are at best irrelevant or something to be transcended, and at worst, actively repressive, holding us back from who we we really, or, or to use a word I don't really like, authentically are. So let me take a couple of steps back to understand this. I've had Joe Hendricks on the podcast as well, who has talked about the idea of weirdness, of how much of human psychology is based on people who are Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Psychology studies undergraduates at universities where the psychologists teach. And it so happens that those people are quite different from a lot of the rest of the world population. And one of the things that really struck me in that book is that you can ask people, give me 10 adjectives or 10 facts about who you are. And the basic divide seems to be between more traditional societies all over the world that say things like, I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm a father, or even sort of more broadly belonging and, you know, I'm a member of this tribe or a villager, a resident of this, of this village or town. Whereas in populations that are weird, and those include literally Western, etc. societies, but also many university students in Nairobi or in Bangkok or all over the world, people are much more likely to say, well, I'm a university student, or I'm an economist, or i somebody who has these political beliefs. So they, they define themselves in these different ways. So how does your story sort of intersect with that story? Is it a different way of expressing a similar point, or are you telling a sort of different story? 
For clarity, when I'm talking about this cultural shift, I am speaking not globally, but specifically about, let's say, 2023 America and to a lesser extent, Europe or places that are specifically sort of within this cultural remit. With that said, I think I'm telling a parallel story. I think that there's a broad strokes overlap there. For me, now I'm a trained theologian and I joke, you know, maybe it's when you have a, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But I think that this is a story largely about theology and religion, which is to say, particularly it is about in the European West and then in America, a transition from, roughly speaking, a vision of a God-ordered universe where our relationship to one another and our own selves is mediated by an awareness of ourselves as created beings who are subject to divine order and divine plan. And you can find this in Aquinas on Natural Law, the sense that just as God makes the birds and the trees and the flowers, God makes kings and princes. And because of this sense of social and natural order being intertwined, your average medieval peasant, sure, that sense of who they are is deeply intertwined with a sense of the world in which they are like, not particularly important, one might say. Now, this starts to change, particularly in the Renaissance, this, this idea comes under certain kinds of tension, but it's really in the European, what is broadly called the European Enlightenment onwards, that this starts to change significantly. And as attitudes about what the role of God might be as in sort of for a shared societal narrative, as ideas about God's representatives, particularly the Catholic Church, and their legitimacy start to wane. Increasingly, the sense that I am created by God for a purpose I do not know and cannot access gives way, particularly in the 19th century, where different sort of theological language comes in, a lot of language of what a, today we might call vibes, uh, energy forces that human beings can harness. There becomes the sense of Whatever is divine in the world is not out there with a personal creator God, but some kind of force that human beings can access through their psychological affective states and harness in order to basically manifest what they want in this earthly life rather than achieve a reward in some afterlife. And so traditions like the New Thought tradition in America become the sort of new theological account of what it means to be human. A uh, new thought, which gets founded in the 1860s, is basically a proto-the secret, proto-law of attraction, runs on the idea that if you just think positive enough, you will bring health and wealth into your life. This becomes a hugely, hugely influential cultural phenomenon during the Gilded Age. And at the core of it is the sense that if you just want something badly enough, you can make the universe give it to you. And that that is sort of how the universe functions theologically. And while I think New Thought itself is not widely understood now, this kind of language, this kind of cultural miasma is very much present. Um, over 50% of Americans believe that manifesting works. About 20% say they regularly do it. Purely anecdotally, if we're talking generationally, all the Zoomers are doing it. <laughs> so one way of putting this is that this is the story that from a psychological perspective, we might call the weirdification of our culture. But when you go back to the beginning or before the beginning of your story, most people in Europe and those people who are in North America at the time are not weird, right? They are living in communities in which the sense of belonging 
is much more determined by their social relations and a particular theological conception of what those signify and what justifies them. And then what you're telling is the particular story, but particular in a very broad sense, which is to say a broad story about the cultural transformation of a large swath of the West from continental Europe to North America, of what the specific moral content of our weedification is. So tell me a little bit more about the set of beliefs that people have come to adopt from that. And here, I guess I'm interested in the span of beliefs that people have. What is the sort of ideal type model of how we relate to these ideas in modernity? And what do you as a theologian who only has one hammer so everything looks like God actually perceive underneath the surface of that secular, rationalist self-description of our society? I think that there's two ways to answer the question. And I think on the surface, America in 2023 looks quite religiously diffuse, which is to say about 25% of Americans are now religiously unaffiliated. That goes up to 36% when you're talking about younger millennials and Generation Z. But about 72% of those religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S nuns, will say they believe in something. And I'd say that there is this sort of general tendency on the part of both traditionally religious and spiritual but not religious Americans alike to do what I call religious remixing. This idea that, all right, a little bit of yoga here, a little bit of sage cleansing here, try some tarot, go to synagogue on the high holy days. This sense that religious and spiritual elements of our lives exist to be curated and brought together in the service of basically each of us creating our own religion. And so there's one way of looking at it and saying this is kaleidoscopic, this is fractured, everybody's doing their own thing. But and as your question suggests, and as I, I've become increasingly convinced between strange rights and self-made, a lot of these phenomena are downstream of a very specific and relatively narrow set of assumptions. The first is that, and I think it's a I'm surprised now to think about how self-evident it is for so many people in this sort of weird world, to use your, your categorization, that the purpose that we have as human beings is for us to choose. And one of the things that makes us human is the ability to choose our purpose. If you want to find a historical antecedent for this, this is uh, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola's Oration on the Dignity of Man in, in 1509, where he, he basically is among the first Renaissance humanists to somewhat controversially argue this, that human beings have no fixed place, no fixed form. We simply exist to choose our own self. We, we may fashion ourselves. And I think that deeply intertwined with this sense that our purpose is for us to choose is the sense that if there is a kind of divine force out there, and I think there's a span of beliefs on that and also a span of ways of talking about this sort of phenomenon that are perhaps less different than they appear, that either nothing matters, there's nothing out there, and so all that exists is human will and human desire to shape perception, which is maybe the more sort of Nietzschean version, or a slightly more New Age spiritualized account that sort of there's energy flowing through the universe, whatever is divine is kind of a force like electricity that can be harnessed, can be contacted. But most importantly, the closest we get to that force is when we 
investigate our own desires, our own feelings, our own thoughts. That the closest thing to an authentic self is by exploring what we want and by thinking of those things that put limits on what we want, especially family, community, societal restrictions, societal taboo, is these things are worrying at best, at worst, just plain evil. And I think that this sort of set of assumptions is something that you can find half the advertisements on the New York subway have some sort of connection to this set of assumptions, the set of ideology about energy and being your best self and harnessing it and not letting other people define you. And the final sort of assumption that I think is encoded in that ideology is the one that as a theologian I'm most critical of, which is the idea that we can know what we want. The idea that our access to our affective selves allows us some measure of true, authentic engagement with our real selves. And I I find this really striking because I feel that there's a very strong and robust tradition in pretty much every literary and religious tradition out there that human beings don't know themselves very well. We're very bad at knowing what we want. We're very bad at knowing why we do what we do. We're very bad at investigating our motivations. And yet there seems to be, in this sort of valorization of desire, what I find to be a very striking lack of caution about our ability to really apprehend ourselves. Like even if we, even if desire were the closest way to get to God, we don't know what we want. Nobody knows what they want. I'm wary, that said, I think that there's a version of the story I'm telling in Self-Made that is a more straightforwardly conservative story. And I'm, I'm not a conservative. But there's the sort of the good old days of Thomas Aquinas and the divine right of kings, and then liberalism came and everything is awful and we should just go back. And I don't think that. I think that there is much to be said for the liberal tradition and in particular the way in which human dignity is affirmed at the level of the individual rather than merely as the result of certain kinds of collective, that there is something that we can preserve in valorizing the part of the self that is not reducible to birth, blood, class, what have you. But I do think, and this is where I do become a bit of a crank, the pendulum has swung too far. And I am concerned about this sort of spiritualized individualism and its relationship to our ability to make the kind of compromises necessary to form genuine political community or think meaningfully about our obligations. So let's distinguish between two questions here that I want to probe into deeper in in the next part of the conversation. The first is, what is the nature of the individualism that is now culturally dominant? And how does that relate to the ideals of liberalism? And then the second one is about whether the pendulum might be swinging back and whether it might be swinging back in ways that are themselves concerning. But let's focus on the first part of this now. So I think that there's a popular misconception about liberalism, which from what you were saying at at the end, clearly you don't believe in, but it's important to spell out that philosophical liberalism as a political ideology or as a prescription for how to sustain affluent and peaceful, diverse societies somehow prizes a radical form of individualism over any form of traditional community. And I just think that that's a misdescription of liberalism's historical concerns as well as its contemporary principles. Historically, liberalism was forged out of a wars of religion, out of a clash of different religious convictions. The problem was not 
to liberate people from any form of embeddedness in community. It was to figure out how, when you have different religious communities which had emerged in Europe at that time, you're able to keep the peace, how you avoid having to kill all the people of another faith in order to be able to worship your own. And so many of the core ideals of liberalism are precisely designed to allow people to be in community, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of worship, the freedom of speech. These are all owed to a recognition of how important those forms of community are to people. Now, of course, one of the freedoms they give you is to leave your community, is to go and become a radically self-creating individual. But there's nothing in liberalism that says that is the superior way to live. Now, I guess there is a way in which it does seem to coexist with an ethos in the modern world, which may or may not culturally be owed to or rooted in liberalism, in which a lot of people have those kind of folk beliefs. People don't take as many gap years in the United States, but I'm always very struck by that in Europe and particularly in England, where people say, you know, I'm going to go take a gap year in India to find myself. And the question is always, you know, why did you lose yourself in India? But there is this kind of idea that you need to go out into the world, have fun and interesting experiences, and somehow in the process of that, you will discover your real self, which is certainly not rooted in a particular traditional community that you come from usually, it sort of involves a quest out in the world and yet seems to discover something that is pre-existing, right? It is a ready-made pre-existing authentic self that you have to go find. It's already out there even as you're self-creating it. So that is very interesting to me and, and I'd love for you to help me understand what the component parts of this very popular and widespread ideology are. But I guess I'm skeptical that it is particularly rooted in liberalism beyond the level at which it's sort of, you know, an absence of constraint in which you are forced to live as part of a particular traditional community may give space for this kind of ideology. Absolutely. I think that there is a certain account of the boogeyman liberalism, I'm thinking of Patrick Kinnean's book, where I think the most charitable way I would describe this general line of thinking is that there is some kind of unsettling atomization about contemporary life that one might have reasons to want to investigate historically that seem tied into modernity as a whole. And this, as you say, very particular set of political concerns that very much rooted in the sort of cultural context of watching horrific religious wars for a century is very different from the kind of untrammeled self-celebration that we're both talking about. And I think in terms of the distinction between the two, I would say, I mean, certainly the the most liberal self-making tradition, we want to talk about that, is not at all about untrammeled selfhood. I'm thinking of Frederick Douglass and his ideas of self-making and early American ideas of self-making, which were so deeply rooted in communal virtue ethics. The idea that self-cultivation as a practice and as a sort of secular answer to certain kinds of piety, sure, was necessary in order to legitimize certain kinds of self-government. How can one expect to govern oneself politically without certain kinds of self-restraint? And what I find really interesting about Douglas's vision of self-creation is precisely that freedom is understood as freedom from one's own baser instincts. The quote that I always like to trot out here, because I was found it so striking and unexpected when I began to do this research, was Douglas's view on temperance, for example, because 
he says something which I think would be quite striking to a modern reader, that shadow slavery in America would be ended if only slaveholders were got sober. That if we could get people to stop drinking, they would realize that they were doing the sort of morally abhorrent thing and somehow be transformed. And this vision of, let's say, certain kinds of liberal ideology brought together with the ideology of self-making was absolutely not the kind of untrammeled self that we see just a generation later in America. And that is what is sort of the most, for me, striking transition, is how within a span of, you know, less than 100 years, if we're talking about Douglas's speech, less than that a generation, that the sort of image of the self-made person comes from a vision of a person involved in a difficult political project, valorizing certain kinds of human dignity, to valorizing totally personal pursuit of profit. Uh, the self-made man goes from being a cultural figure that is about is a statesman to a, the cultural figure who is the entrepreneur. And as soon as that transition happens, and it's deeply bound up with Gilded Age economics, it's deeply bound up with the sort of then-current discoveries or theorized discoveries of, of evolution and electricity, which both take on the pseudoscientific character in the public imagination that there's some current underpinning the universe. And those people who know how to seize it have the moral authority to get ahead. And it's that latter vision, this sort of weirdly spiritualized, weirdly individualized vision of human freedom as ultimately being about who is more in touch with the secret workings of the universe, which is distinctly American. It's distinctly rooted in sort of various 19th century American bizarre spiritual traditions, new thought, spiritualism, et cetera, et cetera. But this has become absolutely, I think, the dominant one. I just want to understand this better, and you obviously know vastly more about this than I do. I'm not sure why the transformation from valorizing statesmen to valorizing businessmen necessarily needs to imply this particular change. And I'm wondering whether we're sort of reading Ayn Rand backwards into how people thought about business in the first half of the 20th century. We should say that you might have a theory about one of the things that is very valuable in the United States is to build industry. And so one of the people we should admire are the great industrialists or something like that. But it doesn't strike me from the little I know about them that the great industrialists of the first half of the 20th century, deeply complicated and morally fraud, though many of them were, if you think of somebody like Henry Ford, they didn't strike me as sort of these self-making individualists who are going off on meditation retreats in Bali in order to find themselves, right? I mean, their moral world is perhaps different from that of the middle of the 19th century, but it feels no closer, no further from that than it does to Kim Kardashian or something. So I would have to disagree with you there. I think that by the late 19th century, before we get even to the early 20th century, the sort of narrative that even some of these most successful industrialist figures were using about themselves was this, this narrative of basically pop science, natural selection meets pop science electricity. Andrew Carnegie talks about, for example, reading Herbert Spencer for the first time and Charles and Darby's theories of evolution and says, you know, light came as a flood. I finally understood for the first time that, you know, my pursuit of money is part of the purpose of the universe. And I think that 
This is certainly true at the time, if you're thinking of even Christian preachers like Henry Ward Beecher or Ellery Channing, who are sort of from the pulpit. When I say the pulpit, the pulpit of hugely influential, socially influential churches across the eastern seaboard are lecturing and preaching on this basically the fusion of traditional Christian orthodoxy with these new ideas that the universe wants people to be rich. They want people to be successful. You have John Rockefeller teaching Sunday school sermons about it's not actually bad to be a billionaire. It's not actually a millionaire, I suppose. You know, Christianity is traditionally taught that we shouldn't want things, but this is outdated and outmoded. And this new science is teaching us that actually the universe wants us to kind of evolve and improve and bend towards greatness. And I think it's impossible to overstate the cultural influence of this clearly specific misapprehension of Darwinian evolution, as well as this sort of cultural obsession with electricity as a force that can be harnessed. But it's so deeply spiritualized even then. Even if you don't want to talk about or have your reservations about how the successful self-makers saw themselves. I think another piece of evidence in the kind of mass spiritualization of this form of wealth is the popularity of these new thought, basically self-help books. Every year, there's dozens and dozens of books, all sort of wild bestsellers, James Allen, William Walker Atkinson, so on and so forth, promising ordinary people, poor people, uh, middle-class people who want to be rich, the opportunity to themselves become rich by applying the set of, you know, proto-manifesting spiritual practices. And I think the popularity of these self-help books, of the sort of ideology surrounding them, speak to a shift in the understanding not just of the moral quality of wealth, but the relationship between acquisition of wealth and the implicit purpose of the universe. The idea that God wants you to be rich, which later, you know, gets folded into the prosperity gospel and evangelical traditions. It gets folded into so much else. So I I do want to sort of preserve the proto-Kardashian-ness, maybe, or at least the proto-spiritual side of the best-selfism as something that you can read back into or you can find already in the existing texts of Gilded Age ideology of wealth. Thank you. That's really helpful. Can I push you to sort of take off the hat as an intellectual historian for a moment and put on the hat of a social critical philosopher? Coming to the present moment, what do you think in sort of the most straightforward terms possible are the sort of key tenets of Kardashianism And why is it bad? What is your case against it? I think it's implicit in much of what you've been saying, but you're worried about it. And I'm sure that a lot of my audience is going to be sympathetic to that critique. But can you spell it out for us? Sure. So I think the idea that our selves are commodities that we not only can, but should, or else we're sort of falling out of what it means to be human, cultivate for economic gain and for a kind of social capital that our bodies, our stories, our traumas, to use a common buzzword, these are all material for us with which to create the content of our lives. And that ultimately, the way that we can best harness this is thinking about who we really want to be and shaping ourselves towards that. And my concern about this is not in and of itself that I think being who one wants to be is bad. 
I don't have a problem with anyone who wants to dress up like David Bowie. I myself, you know, would love to dress up like David Bowie from time to time. My concern is that it becomes almost impossible to think of political community as something worth subjecting oneself to if one does not have a robust notion of a shared external truth that is meaningful beyond our own personal realities. And I think that the gospel of self-creation is, and this is indistinguishable from a kind of ideology of reality creation, that there's no order out there, there's no purpose out there, meaning purpose and reality are for us to create. And especially, it goes without saying that in the social media age, where more and more of us are disembodied, more and more of us have access to channels of information, that sense that reality is simply perception becomes all the more palpable. So how can anybody be expected to make the kind of sacrifices necessary for community to understand oneself as having certain kind of moral obligations to one another that one does not choose? Because if the things that we choose, that we want make us truly who we are, if they're what make us us, first of all, what does that mean for those people in society who either do not wish to or cannot make themselves in a particular way? Do they get left behind? And secondly, what does it mean to basically be a person in a society without a robust sense of obligation? I see that. And I obviously, you know, you have written and spoken a great length about the sort of kaleidoscopic political fracture of American life. And it, I get more and more pessimistic post-pandemic. I think there was a time in the pandemic where I did think this is going to come to an end and we're all going to come together in this national emergency. And I do think I was wrong. Yeah, sadly. You were wrong about that, but many of us were. So I am sympathetic to much of that point. And one of the ways in which I have changed is that as somebody who, as Jürgen Habermas once said, is religiously unmusical and who did not grow up in a religious tradition. I used to think that religion inspires a lot of bad things in the world. And certainly right now you can see how it can be used and mobilized for a lot of terrible violence in the world. But as a result, I sort of assumed, you know, the ongoing process of secularization of America is going to be a positive force because it allows us all to be tolerant and peaceful and so on. And it seems to have done the opposite as people have withdrawn from religious communities into more individualized spiritual beliefs or into just nihilism. They seem to have gotten lonely and angry in ways that help to explain some of our political moments. So at this point, And I had an interesting conversation, perhaps debate about this when Sam Harris was on the podcast. I've become much more concerned about what a deeply secular America will look like for that reason. Now, I'm trying to understand the second set of questions that I was going to ask you about. Because in a sense, I am tempted to argue that perhaps the pendulum has begun to swing back. That when you look at the ideology of the second half of the 20th century, there was an individualism to it, a valorization of a self-creating individual, a valorization of a form of universalism that conceives of ourselves in terms of our individual attributes and aspirations rather than our belonging to particular communities. And you can defend what I think is a more positive version of that. You can point out that in some ways culturally that has led to Kardashianism or perhaps 
cosmopolitanism, not in the sense of the political philosophy, but in the kind of basic set of implied values of Cosmopolitan magazine of years 2000s and 2010s, right? But it was sort of consonant with the culture you describe. Now, what I'm struck by and what I've been chronicling recently is the rise of a new set of ideas about identity categories, about race, gender, and sexual orientation. The fact that many progressive educators in this country now think that their task is to teach students to conceive of themselves as racial beings, not as individuals, but as racial beings, right? The fact that in many American contexts we're now encouraging and sometimes mandating racially segregated affinity groups, or sometimes affinity groups segregated or self-selected, I suppose, by sexual orientation and other kinds of identity markers. Now, the straightforward reading here is that all of that goes against your thesis, that this is the pendulum swinging back and we're, we're re-engineering a world where we're going to be defined by those group identities. Now, Perhaps that would be too simplistic a critique, and perhaps that's what you are preparing in your mind to, to say as I'm making this point, because there's something oddly individualistic about the nature of this. There's sort of this weird claim where you are defined by the particular intersection of identities at which you stand, and that simultaneously is both supposed to mean that to understand you, I need to understand you by virtue of your descriptive identity characteristics, and you have no choice in this matter. People like Thomas Chatterton Williams, who want to make race a less big part of how society works, and who says he's given up on the attachment to the idea that his children need to be perceived as black, are sort of the ultimate provocation to people in this tradition. But on the other hand, there is a kind of claim that to be recognized as standing at your particular intersection of identities is what's going to allow you to be seen and affirmed as a true individual. So there's something sort of paradoxical about the promise that this ideology makes. So as you see, I have many thoughts about this and I'm confused about it. So please help make sense of it for me and for my listeners. Well, I'm very grateful because you've made part of my argument for me. So yes, which is to say, I'm very glad you asked me about the kind of social justice left, precisely because I think that both the social justice left and certain forms of the reactionary right, and I'm saying this without drawing any moral equivalence, but simply as a phenomenon, to me are both, I would describe them less as the pendulum swinging back and more attempts to work out what seems to be a cultural malaise about individualism with the tools of individualism at hand, which is to say that I think that there is a shared sense, particularly among people my age and younger, so, you know, millennials and Zoomers, that there is something missing in this sort of what they might refer to as a neoliberal account of the world, just to use a language where we can, don't have to get into whether that's an accurate term or not. I think that there is a sense that something about human givenness is important. And this is missing. And this leads a lot of people with various political prior convictions to various ways of working it out. But I think that, as you say, the precise nature of the ways in which this is being worked out often ends up being kind of not fully cohesive precisely because the end point is the individual and the individual self-description, you know, speaking for myself, I, Tara, am, you know, I am ethnically Jewish and I'm culturally, I'm half Italian and half American and like these things do very much shape who I am. But I think there's a way to think about it as the political communities I'm part of and the responsibilities I have to various people in my life and the ways in which I'm informed by those things are part of what makes me me. And I think that that's a very sort of neutral thing to say. 
But I think the point at which certain kinds of affirmation are using this kind of language as a form of affirmation in a culture where every single thing we do and consume is a kind of other form of self-affirmation where, you know, our New Yorker tote bag or our Twitter avatar or our social media presence or what we post as part of this brand building, everything becomes an act of very specific, very targeted self-disclosure. And my sense is, and perhaps I'm just an old crank, that some of the more social media based ways of thinking about capital I identity do kind of come from the tension between a real cultural hunger for acknowledging elements of communal givenness and a lack of shared cultural tools about what that might mean to exist in a wider political community, including ones where people don't share several of your characteristics, regardless of what those characteristics might be. And then I think, meanwhile, on the reactionary right version of race science and Evo psych, it's a much more sort of straightforward line between post-Nietzschean nihilism and a sort of valorization of certain kinds of power in a vacuum. But that's a separate argument. So what does all of this interesting analysis mean for people who want to preserve our politically liberal system in terms of our own personal practices or the kind of culture that we should encourage. If, and I think we agreed on this, perhaps we're not, you believe that broadly speaking, our basic political institutions have served us relatively well, that for all of the injustices in our societies that we should continue to fight against, the United States today, the United Kingdom today, France or Germany today, Japan and Australia today are much more tolerant and affluent places than they have been in the past and than virtually any other parts of the world are. And yet, if you recognize that we have what I would see in light of this conversation as sort of twin danger, the danger of a sort of superficial individualism that is spiritually suspect and seems to make it hard for us to actually have the kind of political solidarity we need with each other to sustain those kind of polities. And then the most common attempt to remedy that among young people seems to be a sort of neo-identitarianism that pretends to be progressive actually ends up validating a lot of the basic in-group, out-group mechanisms that have often led to political disaster, and don't even ultimately get away from the shortcomings of the previous ideology, because they smuggle in some of the same suspect spiritual claims about how to truly find themselves. So what would a third way, I, I hesitate to say, on personal identity look like? What would it be like to embrace a spirit that is that gives people freedom to self-create the lives in appropriate ways while recognizing the importance of various forms of community and that could help to be one of the bases at least for political commitments and habits and instincts that'll help to sustain our basic societies. It's a great question. As an Episcopalian, I'm always a big fan of a good third way. My intuition is that the best potential avenue we have out of this crisis happens at this very, very hyper-local level. 
we are not going to get anywhere in terms of national politics and an individual's relationship to national politics mediated by a uh, Twitter discourse. But where I do see the kind of avenue for building these kinds of communal identities, communal self-conceptions towards change are at the hyper-local level of, you know, your town, your neighborhood. I live in a neighborhood in New York City called Red Hook, where what's very strange about it is unlike many New York neighborhoods, we all know our neighbors. It's very isolated. It doesn't have a good public transit system. And so it's fostered a kind of communitarianism. It has the Ikea, though. What do you mean it doesn't have a public transport? <laughs> uh, the Ikea ferry is only on weekends. I live by that Ikea. But what, what I find re- really interesting about you've got trash on your block, you're going to have to work with your neighbors to deal with the trash on the block. You've got flooding, you're going to have to work with your neighbors to be to deal with flooding. And what I would like to see on a top-down policy level is more investment in local communities and local community infrastructure. Uh, it sounds perhaps it's a little idealistic of me to think that, you know, public parks and bike lanes will solve everything. And I don't think that. But I do think that the only way that most people will have access to the kind of political life that involves knowing people who are in community with them that are different and also working towards an actual outcome does tend to happen at that hyper, hyper local level. Unless we're going to have national public service corps or something like that, which by the way, I think would be great. The closest opportunity we have to provide people, whether they live in cities or smaller towns with avenues towards political life that is not identity driven or is not identity driven in the sense that we're describing is to support the kind of infrastructure for civic life where people just have to know and live with their neighbors. So I'm a little bit unsatisfied with that answer, but I think it's inevitable. I've written in the past about the chapter 10 problem that if you have a book of public policy that in the first nine chapters convinces the reader that there's some great problem somewhere. The 10th chapter, which envisages a solution, is always going to feel unsatisfactory because either it calls for radical changes that we all know are never going to happen, or it sort of says, you know, here's a small little fix, and you say, well, perhaps some of that will be adopted, but it won't sort of transform the basic nature of the problem. And I think that while I agree with all of the virtues of you know local community connectedness and organizing, I just fear that this falls a little bit foul of a chapter 10 problem, which is not a reflection on you, but I think on the structure of the question. But let me push you on one other thing, perhaps, which is that a few years ago, when everybody was talking about Jordan Peterson, who thankfully has somewhat faded from prominence, I always thought, you know, this is our thought. And what I meant by that is that People in the mainstream, on the left, or on the center-left, are very bad at offering people any form of moral guidance. They're often quite good at doing that within their own families or communities. I mean, especially in the United States, the sort of affluent, coastal, quote-unquote, elite actually has deeply bourgeois practices of marriage and child-rearing and so on, and they communicate that to the next generation quite effectively. And for all of the complaints I sometimes have about my students, they are all unfailingly polite, competent human beings who are going to lead worthwhile lives and by and large treat the people in their lives reasonably well. But they're really bad at offering that at a broader level. And so if you're somebody who didn't have the luck to be raised with some of that advice, if you're floundering, if you're casting about for what should guide you, there just isn't much serious fought and reflection in the mainstream for how to do that. And so when I said 
that Jordan Peterson is our fault, it's that he was willing to step into that space which all of us had left vacant. And so uh, we were to blame for that vacuum. If we are to fill that vacuum in a better way, if after recognizing that the models that people have for how to think of themselves in terms of identity or for how to construct a meaningful life are not helpful, that if they read Cosmopolitan magazine or they go to an Ivy League university, they're not going to get exposure to the kinds of ideas that can help them construct a more worthwhile life. How do we fill that? I mean, what moral traditions should we draw on? What social practices should we engage in to do that? And shouldn't your next book project be to uh, offer this advice? <laughs> Absolutely not. So I... Perhaps I'm pessimistic, as you are, about the ability of the current market to support anything but, like, I don't think we can get anything but a Jordan Peterson, which is to say, I think the attention economy is structured to incentivize someone who has a good idea, dialing that idea up to 15 and monetizing it and kind of becoming a sort of self-parody rather than having a more measured but less tweetable vision of life. I think that at the point at which we're saying there's a, an empty space for a intelligent guru to fill, we're going to have 25 charlatans before we can even start thinking about someone who might be a useful model. Meanwhile, I think that the places that I see good community work being done or even models of living being expressed, I'm thinking I, I write for Plow Magazine, which is run by the Bruderhof, which is a pacifist Anabaptist Christian group that doesn't own private property, who are some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. But like, they're not going out. Adver they, they are on Twitter, actually. They're very funny on Twitter, but they're not trying to make a million dollars with a Patreon either. So I don't know, short of, uh, a modern day saint or holy fool coming on the scene who is somehow able to channel social media for good. I don't know that the self-help tradition or the self-help market is the place to, to find any of this stuff. That said, I do think there is room for, and again, I hoped for this from post-COVID Biden and didn't quite pan out. There is room for large-scale funding for certain kinds of projects, be it create jobs with infrastructure, be it robust libraries and community centers and all of that stuff that doesn't convince you, Yasha. But I do think that the kind of material support for any kind of communal life and social safety nets that protect those that are vulnerable to the forces of alienation, that seems like as good a start as I could possibly imagine, even as I am wary that there is any anything short of all of us throwing our cell phones into the ocean that will save us. And I'm not yet ready to prescribe throw our phones into the ocean as a policy proposal, even if I am tempted to. Well, Tara, you're not a saint, nor uh, I'm happy to say a holy fool that you helped us think through these really interesting issues extremely well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for your time and for having me on here. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally... Please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. 
This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.